I remember the first time I walked into this room with Tanner and um, I began to listen to what God had put on his heart and part of your leadership and just envision what God was going to do in this place. And now this morning when he gave me the opportunity to be a part of it, I jumped at it. I just wanted to be here to be with you. I just want to thank you for what you're doing and God's doing through you in Redemption Church. I love your pastor. It's such a Jesus church. And it was so, uh, so great an opportunity to get to be here this morning along with my wife. So we're looking forward to these next few minutes. I know we're beginning, kicking off a series today, Real Life. And I get one Sunday to tell you everything I know about parenting. And uh, now that means that it, it would take a whole lot longer than just now, this one message. But I will tell you this, oftentimes people looking at us at our age, and yeah, we are a little bit older than the average person in this crowd this morning. Uh, most of the church planners say that whenever Gil and I attend, the average age goes way up. But uh, one of the things that happens whenever you reach our age is that people will begin asking questions, probing, hey, you got kids? Yeah, I got kids. We got three. And we got three grown adult kids, and we got nine grandkids. And, and then immediately, almost the follow-up after they go through a few other kind of a conversation, they kind of pull us off to the side, and they say, okay, so your children are grown. Looking back, what have you learned from your years of child raising? And the underlying question is, do you have any real parental advice for us? Can you tell us, can you give us any hints? Can you give us any uh, advice that, we could, that you can speak into our lives? And, and I, you know, my immediate response, quiet, I never say this out loud, is, can I tell you all the things not to do? Can I tell you the thousand mistakes, the ton of mistakes that we made along the way? Because I'm no perfect parent. And I think a lot of times that's where we often tend to go when we start thinking about our parenting. The first place that we tend to go to is about all the things that somehow or another we didn't do or we aren't doing. And I would have to be honest with you, when I start thinking and listening to the conversations with most parents today, one of their biggest, deepest concerns especially among those who are Christ followers, is that somehow or another, they might mess up their kids' lives. It's a very real concern more than any other generation. I don't know if there's any ever been a generation like this one that is so wrapped up, kind of on edge. I want to make sure I don't mess up my kids' lives. I want to make sure I get this parenting thing right. And there's this question that kind of pushes them to the anxiety cue right at the very top. And that question is, what am I going to do with these kids? That's an important question. It's a very important question. Because we're all consumed with, just as we were, but maybe more so accentuated in this day and time, I want to make sure my kids, and you've heard this phrase, turn out okay. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, that most everybody, I don't think anybody says, boy, I hope my kids grow up and he'll, you know, just really mess up their lives. Everybody's wanting the absolute best for their kids. And within the Christian context, as Christ followers, we go, I want to make sure that my Christian values come through. I want to make sure that they live this fully, full-on, devoted life to Christ. And then we start hearing stories, and the kind of stories we don't want to hear, especially within the Christian community. We start hearing stats, like the vast majority of graduating seniors, when they leave home, they leave their faith behind, even though they grew up in a Christian environment. We don't want to hear those stories. Because we're thinking, all I got to do is just get this right, and they'll, they'll turn out right. And we, we want them to be spiritual champions. You know, I sometimes think that if parenting, somehow or another, we could 
kind of keep score and, and we could kind of see where we're doing from time to time, I think it might help us. You know, you know, for example, right now I'm in third place, and if I could just change a few more diapers, take a few more daughters out for a few more dates, coach my son's team, if I could leave a few more handwritten notes, and maybe do a few more devotionals, maybe I might qualify the parenting playoffs. And you've just got this mindset. You'd love to be able to keep score to see how you're doing, but here's the truth. You have to have the patience and courage to keep on parenting when you never know what the score is. You don't really know exactly where things are. Now, I think there's approaches because of this that we take, and one of the approach is that we kind of buy into this cultural, psychological determinism that says if you will do these four, five, six things, if you will follow this particular parenting formula, your kids are going to turn out all right. And we've Christianized that, and what we basically have said, there are Christian parenting techniques, and if you'll follow these, these will produce godly children. So we buy all the books, we go to all the conferences, we listen to all the messages that we can, podcasts. But here's the reality, and this is where we're going to take, it's a different approach. I, every once in a while I hear people say, I want to have a biblical family. Are you sure? Have you ever checked out the families in the Bible? I don't think you want a biblical family. Because, for example, when you start reading in Hebrews chapter 11 about all the heroes of the faith, the ones that are described as conquering kingdoms and gaining what was promised and how the world is not worthy of them, most of them, even though they were spiritual giants, were raised in anything but model homes, and many of them were highly flawed parents. So, while they were spiritual giants, they really aren't examples to us when it comes to this whole parenting thing. So I want to take a second approach, maybe an unusual approach this morning to talk about parenting. It's an uncomfortable way of looking at parenting, and it's painful because we're going to look at parenting this morning through the lens and the emotions of regret. That's what we're going to do for the next several minutes that we have together this morning. And as we're looking at them, what regret is it's the, the second most common emotion that you and I will feel. And regret basically says, as you look at your past in the present moment, you think, if only I had made a different choice, if only I had moved in a different direction, then imagine how different things would be. And whenever we have regrets, you've had them, I have them on a regular basis. One of the first things we try to do with our regrets is just kind of make them go away and deny that anything really happened as bad as it did. Sometimes we're so bewildered when we look at what's happened in our lives, the decisions that we've made, the choices, and we go, how could I have been so stupid? Why in the world did I do that? And sometimes we even move into this kind of punishing ourselves. We kind of just beat ourselves down. And sometimes we have this endless loop of replay over and over in our mind. And sometimes we want to just do a control-alt-delete and get it off our mind. And it just doesn't happen that way. Here's a thought maybe you've never actually considered, that regret is actually a gift from God that he uses to help us to learn. And so we want to be honest about our regrets. And I want to talk about this morning through the life of one particular individual in the scripture. But before I do, I want to pose two questions I'm going to put up on the screen. And I want you to see these questions. And I want you to think about them in the back of your mind throughout the message. 
Let me pause here before I look at them. There are some of you this morning that are, come from traditional families. Some of you have blended families. Some of you come from single-parent homes. Some of you have adopted children. Some of you have biological children. Some of you have foster children. Some of you don't have any children, but you have a parent, and you potentially may be a parent. So these two questions are big. Here's the first one. If I keep on being the parent I am today, what will be my biggest regret when I get to the end of my life? And then the second question. How might God call me to change the way I'm living my life as a parent so I don't end up there? What would be my biggest regret if I keep on moving in the direction that I'm moving at? You see, the the best time to address regret is before it happens. And so this morning, we're going to learn from one of the most intense regrets that the Bible has recorded anywhere. It was lodged in the heart of a man named David. But an incredible reputation as a military genius, as a leader of leaders, a hero of heroes. More importantly, he had an unrivaled intimacy with God so much so that he was called a man after God's own heart. And yet David lived with the most intense regret I find anywhere in Scripture. And we're going to actually get to it in a little bit. But let me just kind of bring you into David's story, if I can, for, for a moment. When you start reading, I'm just going to bring you up to a period in time in his life where he experienced this intense regret when he was in his for, uh, late 40s and perhaps early 50s. But I want to give you a little bit of backstory about David, just kind of set it up for a moment and lead into that particular place in Scripture we're going to look at. If you want to go ahead and jump there, it's going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 15, in verse 13 and following. We'll get there in a minute, but let me just kind of give you a little bit of the backstory first. David, in spite of everything else about him, what probably you've never recognized is that he had a bunch of wives. In fact, he had eight of them. Uh, He was a polygamist in that regard, so I'm going to let you talk to Tanner about unraveling that. He'll figure that one out for you. But if you have a bunch of wives, you have a bunch of kids, and he had 20 of them. And if you can imagine, there was absolutely nothing about their home that was simple, it was complex. Can you imagine all the rivalry and all the uncertainty in that particular family? And there were times in David's life, because of all the different choices that he made, he made one particular tragic misstep when he uh, took another man's wife, and then in this massive cover-up, he was able to, in his own way of thinking, get rid of the problem, when in fact it only made the problem worse, when he had one of his most loyal generals killed placed in a position of battle where he would be killed. Now, all of that has happened in David's life, and, and then you begin to pick up the story a little bit about what Nathan had propheted began to tell David about, hey, these missteps in your life, they're going to catch up with you someday. There are going to be some real consequences. And so when we begin to see the consequences played out, we find his oldest son, Amnon. Amnon has this thing for his half-sister, Tamar. It's the kind of thing where he can't get, him off, get her off of his mind. He's infatuated to the point that he conspires with his friend Jonadab, a scheme in which he can entrap her. Everybody knows that this is going on, but David somehow or another is totally unaware. He's clueless about what's happening within his own family, the turmoil that's taking place, this intrigue, this terrible thought of an Amnon older brother taking advantage of his half-sister Tamar, and yet he does. In the scripture that we read, it gives this sordid kind of description of how that he forced himself upon her, how he raped her, and then afterwards she begs him to somehow another, let's make this right. And he says, no, you disgust me now. I don't want to even be around you. David is so totally negligent here. He's been indulgent 
in his lifestyle, in his Bathsheba adulterous affair that was a private sin that became a public scandal. Now you see David as a parent being negligent, totally unaware, clues of what's happening in the lives of his children. And then David's response to all of this, what does he do? Word gets to David. What is David? How is David going to respond to these actions of his oldest son who's raped his daughter? What is he going to do? The Bible just simply says this. When the king heard all of this, he was furious. He didn't do anything else. There was no other responses. It was as if David thought, I'll get, you know, it'll go away. Things will get better. And here you see not just negligence, but you see passivity as a parent. He's not engaged, yes, but whenever something happens, instead of acting with wisdom and courage to resolve the issue, he moves away from it. Passivity takes over in his life. Well, Tamar had a true blood brother, and that was Absalom. He was the second oldest son. And Absalom said, if my father's not going to do anything about it, I will. And he conceives this plot over two years. He waits and waits and waits. And one time he decides to throw what seemingly is a big family party. And he instructs his servants to make sure that Amnon has enough to where he's inebriated, he's drunk. And in the middle of that party, David's not present. He murders Amnon in revenge for Tamar's raid in front of all of his brothers and all of his family. They run for their life, thinking that perhaps he's going to destroy all of them. He's just wanting to make sure Amnon pays for what he did, because his father had done nothing. Word of this gets back to David. What does David do? David had not responded to Amnon. Hey, he was caught in a situation, it would seem like. What is he going to do now? One of his sons has killed another of his sons, and now that son has run off in refuge and as a fugitive. What is he going to do about it, and what does David do? He does nothing. Passivity again as a parent. Three years go by. David begins to kind of long in his heart to maybe reconnect with his fugitive son Absalom who, who will succeed him as king. He's so much like David. He's handsome. He's, he's also a very gifted leader. Absalom at the same time longs to come back to his father. So his father arranges for his son to come back. He's been a fugitive in Syria and he comes back. And when he comes back, David says this. He can go to his own house, but I don't want to see his face. I don't want to see his face. He can come back. He can live, but I don't want to see him. Two more years pass, and Absalom kind of finally pushes the envelope till there is this meeting between David and his, his rebel son, Absalom. When they meet, you would think there would be this kind of passionate embrace, there would be this restoration, but the Bible just simply says in a very common language, it just simply says that he kissed him. There was nothing dramatic about the moment. There was nothing that says there's been any kind of restoration. He kissed him. There's just this kind of formal embrace, and to our best knowledge, David never sees his son Absalom again. Do you see this pattern of David's behavior, his choices that he's making? Choice after choice, misstep after misstep, indulgence, an adulterous affair, lack of self-discipline, immorality. You see negligence, you see passivity, and then you see a stubborn refusal to restore a relationship that's broken. You see all of those things. And that's where we begin to pick up the story. Because four years after this so-called reunion of David and Absalom, during the period of time 
Absalom begins to win the hearts of the people. He begins to be an advisor. People are saying, that's the kind of king we need. We can't get to David. Absalom seems to be the, the guy we need to go, the leader that we need. The scripture just simply says it this way. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David gets the news and what he realizes, he realizes, hey, this is not going to go in a, in a good direction. Whatever I, dreams I might have had for our family and for, for Absalom, hey, that's over. I can't undo, I can't go back, it's done. Have you ever been in that moment where you realized there was, there was no way you could reverse, undo? Parents get there. I really messed up. Maybe not to the degree that David did. But boy, did I blow it there. And you realize you can't undo it. And listen to me, parents. That's going to happen. There are going to be days when you do blow it. Days when you hurt and harm your children. Mistakes will be made. Again, maybe not to the extreme that David did. It could be any of the things we just described in a different way. But can you imagine what David was feeling? Continue on in verse 14. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us. And bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, my Lord the king decides. So the king went out and his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after them. And they all halted at the last house. Many of the people are thinking, David's not going to put up with this. He, he, he's a warrior king. But David is forced to face the reality that if he goes to battle, he may be called upon to kill his own son, cause a civil war. There's no winners in this situation. And then the story continues. The whole countryside wept in verse 24. Abathar came up and behold, Zadok came up also with the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God and they set down the ark of God until all the people passed by. Pause here for just a second. The ark of the covenant, the ark of God represented the epicenter of God's presence. If the ark was there, it meant that you would be victorious, that God was on your side. Verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark back to the city. Wait a second, David. If the, we're on God's side. God's on our side. We don't need to send it back to Absalom. David said, take it back into the city. And listen to what he says, his next two verses. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, I, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. This is not some passive response. This is David just simply saying, I'm putting this in God's hands. I'm gonna allow him to play this out. I don't know how it's gonna turn out, but I'm not gonna try to manipulate and force. I'm just gonna let God make, work this out for me in whatever way he chooses to. Let God do to me what seems good to him. 
Then continue on in verse 27. The story continues. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons and, and I will wait here at the forge of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. This is a time of utter humiliation. And it continues on. I can't imagine a worse parenting moment than whenever you feel the utter embarrassment, humiliation, because you blew it as a parent and your child is having to pay for it. The consequences are severe. We'll skip over the next part of scripture here just simply to kind of get back into the story itself. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, you can read more of it yourself. But David flees the city. Absalom comes in. He takes over. He just kind of does an in-your-face move that I won't even go into because it is so nasty in terms of what he did. It's, it's not even worth reading in the sense of how, how very extreme it is. And Absalom begins to gather armies and and against some bad advice, he actually decides to move against David and pursue him. David's in the wilderness, and it's a place he knows very well. It's where he's been many times before. And David has no choice but to defend himself, and so he marshals his support, and he says to them, I, I want us to push back against Absalom, but I want you to realize we've got to defeat them, but my son, he's still my son, and I want you to spare his life. The battle takes place, and Sure enough, the tide turns against Absalom and David begins to, his army begins to push back Absalom and Absalom literally in fleeing from the army of David gets his head caught in the bow of the tree and he's hanging in this very vulnerable position and there in that vulnerable position, he is killed by Joab, the captain of David's army. News reached David. The runner comes, verse 32 King, 2 Samuel 18, verse 32 through 33. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom, if I'd only died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, you can see it. That's my boy. And the word there for grief is ragas, which means he was literally uncontrollably shaken to where he cannot in any way calm his soul. Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 19, verses 2 through 3, that the army comes in, but they have to come in like stealth because the only sound they can hear is the king weeping. I just want you to keep that picture in mind. The missteps, the patterns, the choices that David made, and now this enormous, painful regret that is crushing his soul. I want you to hear some things that we might learn from David, and then I want us to wrap the message up by going to a different place that makes all the difference. What does David teach us here? 
Listen to what he teaches us. You can't live without regret until you have lived with regret. Until you own it, till you feel it deeply, until you just say, I blew it. David acknowledged that way too late, but ultimately he came to the place where he said, yes, it's on me. You can't live without regret until you have lived with regret, until you acknowledge it. Second thing that we can learn from David is regardless of what happens, accept what happens. Your response and my response to regret as a parent, we either complicate it or transform it. I can't change what has happened. There was no attempt on David's part to fight back. David's response, he didn't make it worse. David just simply said, hey, look, uh, I'm not going to fight back in a revengeful manner. A third thing that we can take away is this. And this is the one I want you to hold on to. You press on in confidence while waiting. You trust God with the outcome. Do you hear what David said? Let the Lord do to me what seems best to him. Let the Lord do to me what seems best to him. I'm going to put my confidence in what he can do. And then the final kind of takeaway on this is make an all-out effort to restore what has been broken now. Rest in God's promise to restore what has been lost. Pursue it. Don't shut the doors. Don't say it's done. Pursue whatever is broken to restore it now. Now, here's the part of the story I want to change. David fled the city of Jerusalem. He crossed over the brook Kidron, and he went into the wilderness. A thousand years later, not David, but the son of David, crossed over that same brook, and he went to the only place where you can really take your regret, and that's to the cross. And you see, as we talk about regrets this morning, the only way to deal with regrets is the gospel. It's the cross. Because that's where you can take all of the sinful missteps, all of the mistakes, all the patterns of behavior, you can bring it there. And through the cross, you begin to receive his grace, which brings about a brokenness and which brings about a change of heart. It can be a transformative moment. Things can be made right. That's what you do as a parent when those inevitable moments when you make mistakes are when you as a child and many of you are adult children whose parents have made mistakes toward you which continue to impact your life. How do you deal with all of that? You take it to the cross. That's the gospel. What do you find there? Forgiveness, grace, Endless mercies, opportunity for transformation to restore what has been broken through the cross. That's the gospel. It's not a formula. If families would be filled with gospel-centered parents, they would sit down with their children from time to time and say, I just want you to know I just blew it. 
They can see the gospel. They can see that you're an imperfect sinner that needs the forgiving grace of Christ. It tears down barriers. It brings about open opportunities. I like how Dan Meyer puts it. God does not stand on his pride, but humbles himself, taking the form of a servant. He exercises great patience and perseverance. He travels long distances. He endures great pain. He risks further rejection. God works really hard at redeeming relationships because of life-changing love is the most important thing on his agenda. Real peace doesn't get made without confronting painful issues and naming stubborn sins. It doesn't happen without honest confession and genuine repentance and risky forgiveness. And the key word here is reconciliation almost always requires a daring sacrifice of every understandable impulse to put up or keep up offense. Paul echoes that, accentuates it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and following, listen to what he says. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who have for their sake died and was raised. He says, look, you're controlled now by something that is far greater than yourself. You're controlled by love that's got such a grip on your life that you say, I can't live any other way in the way that Christ has lived. And I can't live any longer for myself. So I have got to change my life. And then look at what he says as he continues that in verse 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at people in terms of their humanness. Even though we once regarded Christ to the flesh, we regard him that way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We can't look at people in life the way the world does. From this point on, the way we relate to God, the way we relate to others, the way we relate to kids should be based upon what Christ has done for us. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He brought two incompatible things. He moved toward us. He kept moving toward us, kept moving toward us, kept moving toward us. Why? To bring two incompatible things together and to bring them together. And how did he do that? Through the cross. So God was... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What? Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Not counting men's sins against them. Not gonna bring this up, but in spite of what you've done, I'm not done with you. I'm gonna move towards you. I'm gonna take you as you are, and then 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, just simply says, God has entrusted with us to live our lives in such a way that people hear this message through the way we live, and that is particularly true as parents. The big ideal is that God works really hard at reconciliation, and so should we. How does all this work out? One final verse, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, says it this way. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If that painful moment drives us to a point that we reach out to God, those regrets will 
no longer be something that is moving into our future. Instead, they'll be transformed into life lessons that will teach us and grow us. But if that grief instead of our regret drives us away from God, we'll have more regrets. That's what he's saying. So what is the summary of all of this for you, for me this morning? I ask you to think about how that if you continue on parenting the way you are, what will be the biggest regret at the end of your life? Where do you need to change? What missteps are you about to make? What choices are you about to make? I've also said, what do you need to change? I've talked to you about avoiding regrets, but I've also talked about how many of you this morning need from David's life story, need to learn a life lesson that says, here's what happens in the aftermath of regret. Yes, you can learn from David, but you need more than anything else to understand the message of reconciliation, the message of the cross. Parenting is not about a formula. Parenting is about the gospel. The gospel of reconciliation. And the more you demonstrate that as a parent, the greater joy you're going to have as a parent. And the more your children are going to see the reality of the gospel in your life as a parent, which makes all the difference. My son, every once in a while, youngest son, we have three children. My youngest son will, uh, from time to time, just say he's a father of three children, soon to be six-year-old, and four-year-old, and 18-month-old. And he'll pull me aside and he'll say, Dad, sometimes I just feel like I'm just such a lousy parent. And I look at him and I'll say, Son, with all due respect, you are so far ahead of where I was when I was your age as a dad. I was going to tell you, I think you're doing a great job. Recently, it was just kind of reaffirmed in my own mind. I walked into their home, and this is what I saw on the screen. When I walked in, it was just simple enough. I saw this on their wall. This is what he and his wife had kind of penciled in or chalked in on this particular Wall, here's what she, they wrote. When you called us to be parents, you did not ask for perfection, but that with every breath we would point Audrey, and this was when they just had two children, we would point Audrey and Claire to you. I can't think of a better vision for you as a parent. You're imperfect. You're going to blow it. Let the gospel be seen in those moments. Let your kids see it. But with every breath you breathe, point your children to the Savior. And there's no better way to do that than in those moments when you blow it, to show them your brokenness, your sinfulness, His grace, and to let it change you and in part change your kids, change your family. It makes all the difference.